Father, we entreat you this morning to meet with us in this place as we are gathered together. We ask for the Holy Spirit as you have given him to us to be a guide, to be a comforter, to be one who convicts us of our own sins, to be one that draws us closer to yourself, the one that gives us wisdom, the one that gives us understanding as we look into your word. We ask this morning that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts open to receive your word this morning. We pray that as we look in your word each and every Sunday that we do not just grow accustomed to it, this being that way, but that we actually recognize that this is your holy word. Even as we sang your words this morning. Your words, Father. Pray your words would speak to us here in this place. Use the time that you have given us this morning, Lord. Speak into our lives. We speak it out against the devil and any distractions this morning. That you would bind him up, Lord, that we would just be able to sit and hear. That you would continue to change us, that you would continue to mold us and shape us into the image of Christ. We cry out, Abba, Father, this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, entitled The Sermon on the Mount. A very familiar passage, I'm sure, to many of us. A very familiar passage to myself. Um, my wife and I had the uh, great opportunity as we were away a few months ago, and I heard another pastor speak on this topic and was reminded of the goodness of God, reminded of what he has done for us, of what this passage means. And uh, even during that time, placed it on my heart that this is something that I would desire to be able to, to preach here at City Lights, that it would be a reminder to you as well. There are many things surrounding the, the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, it uh, comes to us from Augustine. He's the first one that labeled it as the Sermon on the Mount in his commentary. It also has gone by other names, the Ordination Addressed to the Twelve. Uh, it's been known as the Compendium of Christian Doctrine, or the Magna Carta of the Kingdom, or the Manifesto of the King. These are Jesus' words to his disciples. John Stott, who is a well-known theologian of old, I was reading his, his book on the topic, and uh, it was a blessing to my heart. And so I'm going to share a few quotes from his book as we continue on this morning. And so uh, there will be various places where I'll be quoting from him, but he has this to say about the Sermon on the Mount. He said, it's probably the best known part of the teaching of Jesus. 
though arguably it is the least understood. It's one of the most familiar passages of Scripture when we refer to Christ's teaching. And then he says it's the least understood. And certainly it's the least obeyed. It is the nearest thing to a manifesto that he ever uttered, for it is his own description of what he wanted his followers to be and to do. To my mind, no two words sum up its intention better or indicate more clearly its challenge to the modern world than the expression Christian counterculture. Christian counterculture, it reminds me, uh, that phrase reminds me of even, I think, my first ASP trip that we went um, as a group here with City Light, and we went down, and I believe the theme that year was uh, radically transformed, radically changed. And that's what he is talking about in Christian counterculture. It means it goes against the current tide of the world. It goes against the current prevailing thoughts concerning how we live our lives, what we're supposed to strive after, how we're supposed to act, how we're supposed to react to things that happen to us or the people that uh, we meet or uh, become friends with. It talks about when we come to know Christ that it changes our entire perspective. It changes us from the inside out. And that is what he is getting at. He says the essential theme of the whole Bible from beginning to end is that God's historical purpose is to call out a people for himself. To call out a people that is holy. We see that time and time again as you read the Old Testament, as you look at the Israelites, as we talk about why would God choose the Israelites? Why would he choose this group of people? Why did he say that he was going to bless them, that he was going to pour out his love on them? And we're told in Deuteronomy and other places that it wasn't because they were a great nation. It wasn't because there was anything that warranted God to say, oh yeah, they're, they're amazing people. Let's choose them. It was simply because the word says he chose them. They were one of the least of the nations. There wasn't much to them. And continually throughout history, it wasn't because of anything that they had done, but it was because of the God whom they served that their name was made known. And to this day, we, everybody still knows the nation of Israel. pastor has mentioned many times, you don't hear of the Hivites or the Hittites or the Jebusites. Or, everybody knows the nation of Israel. They have stood the test of time. Why? Because God had called them to be his people. He had called them out to be a special people. And he has done the same with us as well. Throughout the whole Bible, his historical purpose is to call out a people for himself that this people is a holy people, set apart from the world to belong to him and to obey him. And that its vocation is to be true to its identity. That is, to be holy or different in all its outlook and behavior. That's what he means by Christian counterculture. That when we read the scriptures, as we see the things uh, that the Lord is going to talk about, as we are reminded time and time again, and then we look out in the world, we see how it's very different. We see how it flies in the face of current logical thoughts. As we read the, the Sermon on the Mount this morning, as we read about it, the backstory is of what has currently happened and what Matthew has talked about. So you have, obviously, the birth of Christ. He talks about the birth of Christ. And you have him, Jesus is older, and then you, he talks about John the Baptist preparing the way and 
Jesus comes before him to be baptized. And then as soon as Christ is baptized, he goes out to the wilderness, to the temptation, the 40 days of temptation, where he is tried and tested. And then he comes back from the wilderness, and he immediately begins his ministry. He calls his disciples to himself. He calls them out by name. Come and follow me. He calls Peter and his brother. He calls all the disciples to himself. And it says of Jesus, if you look just prior in Matthew 4 and verse 23, it says this about Jesus and his ministry. It says, He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. That is the setting for Jesus now coming as we read in Matthew 5. He is known throughout the region. He has preached. He has done these marvelous things. People are all flocking towards him because of what they have heard and what they have seen with their own eyes, because they have told others, and he's becoming famous in the region. And so we need to keep that in the forefront of our minds as Jesus is going to begin his discourse and it's important to note that as Christ had been going throughout the region, as he has been teaching in the synagogues, as he's been ministering to the disciples, as he's been healing people, his message has never changed from the stars. Earlier in verse 17 of Matthew 4, it tells us what Jesus was preaching. It says, from that time Jesus began to preach. After coming away from the temptation after not following, after obeying God to the full letter of the law, it says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is where he is coming from. That is what he has been te teaching about. That is what his disciples have been hearing. That is what the people have been hearing. And so... He's going to give further instruction to his disciples concerning those things. And so, as we read his word this morning, let us keep those things in mind, starting in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you 
and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's just the beginning of his sermon. It goes all the way through chapter 7 and We're going to look at just the Beatitudes this morning, and specifically just the first four. As I said, he's been preaching his message of repentance, and so we need to look at this passage in light of what he has been saying. Repentance being a complete change of mind. Christ here is laying out an example of what human life and human community, we talked about human community, of what that looks like for us. I remember growing up reading this, these verses, reading the Beatitudes. Um, growing up in church, we had VBS and we've had... Um, forget all the things that it was called, but whenever the church doors were open, I was always there. We um, would go to Pocono Mountain Bible Camp, which some of our youth are at now serving um, and continue to serve throughout the summer. And I remember one of the ways in which church would pay for us to go is we had to learn verses. We had to memorize scripture. We had to do various things. And one of those uh, passages of scripture was the Beatitudes. We had to memorize this by heart, commit it to memory, be able to say it in front of another person. And memorizing scripture is awesome, and it's uh, a practice that I don't do enough, and a practice that more of us should be consumed with doing so that we can bring it to memory, so that the, the Spirit can use it when we come across certain situations in our life. But I can still remember thinking of these verses as a kid and not understanding them that memorizing them was just an activity in order to gain the reward of what my desire was, was to go to camp. It wasn't for the purpose of looking into the Word of God and understanding everything that says about it. And so even as a child, I remember the thoughts that I had concerning the Scripture, and it always struck me as funny that God or Jesus is teaching his disciples in this moment, and he's telling them about all of these things. And to me, each one of these things is disconnected from the other. It was, okay, if you do this, this is that. If you do this, this is that. So when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, that's one thing. Then he goes, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That's entirely another separate thing. And blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That's another separate thing. But as you grow in the knowledge of the scriptures, as you continue to read them, as the Spirit continues to give you understanding, as you get the uh, ability to read others that have gone before you that are much smarter than I am, um, you get to see that Jesus is actually presenting uh, a unit as a whole, that each one of these things is building on top of another. That these are not just separate characteristics that we can have at various times in our life, but what he is giving us is Christian qualities that each of us should have as a follower of Christ. 
Not that we do them perfectly all the time because we still have sin in us. But what he is saying that is that when we have been convicted by the Holy Spirit, when we learn the truth of what Jesus has done, of carrying uh, the weight of the world upon him, the sin of the world, that as uh, pastor continues to remind us week in and week out, and we continue to preach here at City Light of what the gospel is, of it being that Christ lived in our place, meaning that he lived perfectly in our place for us, was obedient to the Father, never sinned, not anything within him, that he lived in our place, but more so than living in our place, he died in our place, that the weight of the world, the sin of the world was placed on his shoulders, that he took that from us satisfying the righteous requirements of the law given by the Father, that there was a penalty to be paid, that Christ paid that. He died in our place. He was our propitiation, the Word says. He took our place, and that he rose from the grave, that he conquered death, that it had no hold of him, that he was greater than that. And so because he has life, we can have life for those of us that believe in him. And so... Christ is giving us a picture of what that looks like. He's giving his disciples a picture of what that looks like as he continues to move throughout the countryside, as he continues to be invaded with scores of people coming to him and seeking him for healing, seeking him to perform these miraculous events. The thing that is still ever in the forefront of his mind is repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Time and time again, he is ushering them to repent and believe, repent and believe, repent and believe. And so he gives the disciples a perfect picture of what that looks like. John Stott put it this way. He says, the Beatitudes set forth the balanced and variegated character of Christian people. These are not eight separate and distinct groups of disciples, some of whom are meek while others are merciful, and yet others are called upon to endure persecution. And as I mentioned, that's, that's what I thought as a child reading this. That's what my mind went to. But he says these are rather eight qualities of the same group who at one and the same time are meek and merciful, poor in spirit and pure in heart mourning and hungry, peacemakers and persecuted. Further, the group exhibiting these marks is not an elitist set. It's not as if these are just qualities that only the most godly of men and women hold. As we think of some of them throughout history, of the people that God has called, as you think of the people in the Bible, time and time again we're reminded of the sinfulness of Humans, even those that God had called, even looking at the life of David and yet what God had done in his life and what he was called as man after God's own heart. Yet he had a past, and even after knowing God, going through a time where he murdered somebody, he committed adultery. You have Moses who committed murder. Time and time again we see men of the scriptures who do not hold up to the standard, but that's why it points us every time to Christ, that he is the one that held it perfectly for us. He is the one who was perfectly obedient. So as we read these things, these are not things for an elitist set of people, a small spiritual aristocracy remote from the common run of Christians. On the contrary, 
The Beatitudes are Christ's own specification of what every Christian ought to be. All these qualities are to characterize all his followers. Just as the ninefold fruit of the Spirit, which Paul lists, is to ripen in every Christian character, so the eight Beatitudes, which Christ speaks, describe his ideal for every citizen of God's kingdom. Unlike the gifts of the Spirit, which he distributes to different members of Christ's body in order to equip them for different kinds of service, the same Spirit is concerned to work all these Christian graces in us all. There is no escape from our responsibility to covet them all. I think that's a powerful statement by John reminding us of that as he was spending time in this trying to understand the Scriptures that these are for you and for me. It's for people of all walks of life. It doesn't matter who you are. This is what Christ is describing to his disciples. And so as I try to unpack this this morning uh, for us all, I pray that God would use it to uh, deepen our walk with him. As uh, we begin and as we look at it verse by verse, as we walk through this together, a couple things to, to keep on the forefront of our minds. Um, as many things have been talked about when we get into the Sermon of the, on the Mount, of what this is and what this isn't, of what it might be or what it could be. I want to be uh, specific here in, in reaffirming that these are things for all of us as Christians. And I want to make that vitally important, that these are things for those who have already been convicted of the righteousness of Christ and the need for Christ in our life. Without Christ, these things will not make sense to us. And so if you are without Christ, I pray that these things would be a, a convicting message this morning for us. And in thinking about these things, I don't, I don't have those things. I haven't been convinced of these things, that today would be the day that God is calling us to himself, that the Spirit is working within us to give us life, that he rejuvenates us or has given us life again to be able to say, yes, I believe in Christ. And so at each beginning of the Beatitudes, it begins with the word blessed. Blessed meaning happy. Happy, having a smile on your face all the time. Going through life as if you have no cares, no worries, no nothing that would weigh you down. But that's not what uh, this word is describing here. It certainly does mean happy. It certainly does mean that we are to be happy, but it's more than just a subjective state of mind that's dependent upon what is going on around us. It's an objective state in our lives where we realize because we have Christ, we are blessed. Because he is with us, we are blessed. Because he has provided these things for us, we are blessed. We are happy. It's more than a temporary or circumstantial feeling of happiness. It's a state of well-being in relationship to God that belongs to those who respond to Jesus' ministry. And Jesus' ministry being repent and believe. 
One of the things that pastor continually talks about Sunday after Sunday and as uh, we gather together at, at various events is we have this pull between the here and now and the not yet. That when we talk about the kingdom of God as Christ is talking about the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it's here now. During his time it was there now, but it's also not yet. There are things to come. The same is true of, of this passage as well. We can experience these things in the here and now, but there's also the not yet. There's also the things to come. And so when we are reminded of these things, when we look at the, the term blessed are those who are poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who are meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, be reminded that all of these things are because of we are in Christ. So we have the, the first two verses this morning. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. Many times we see Christ on the mountainside. He's going up the mountain. He's going to speak with the people. He's going out from the cities. He's going into the wilderness to get away. And a lot of times the crowds, they all follow him. They all, they all want to be around him. And so he went up on the mountain. He's, his fame has spread, as we said, what the setting was. People are bringing every kind of diseased person, everything that's afflicting people to Christ for healing. And uh, as is his prerogative at times is to just retreat. And so he goes up on the mountain and it says when he sat down, his disciples came to him. He is gathered by his disciples. This is more of a one-on-one, -on -one, or in his case, one-on-12, or those that have fully believed in him. This isn't him between all the crowds, as that will be at another time, but he's imparting special wisdom to them now, special understanding of what is going on, of what it means to follow Christ. So he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In the Greek, there are two terms for the word poor that describe poverty. The one used here to describe poor in spirit is the more severe of the two. What it denotes is a beggar who is completely dependent on a provider cannot provide for himself. He is dependent upon another person. In the Old Testament, this implied hope in God alone. And I want to point out that when Matthew here is referring to this, blessed are the poor in spirit. Poor is not denoting material possessions. It's not meaning, as often as the case, Christ many times did speak to the poor. Those that were poverty, those at the least, because you have the rich who think they have everything. They have no desires. They have no wants. They have no regard for Christ. So often he is surrounded by the poor, but Matthew in here is denoting a spiritual poorness. As we go through these verses, we're going to be looking at other verses in the scripture are always 
preaching, use other sermon or other scriptures to bring light to what this scripture is. So if you have your Bibles and you want to turn, if you turn to Romans chapter 3, we're going to look at uh, verses 9 through 18. Romans chapter 3. When we talk about being poor in spirit, we're talking about the spiritual condition of not being able to do anything for ourselves. So Paul gives us instruction in, in this. So he, in Romans, Paul is talking to Jews and, and Gentiles and talking about what value it is to be a Jew. Paul himself being a Jew, very learned in the scriptures. And so he begins in verse 9, he says, What then, are we Jews any better off? One of the things they were talking about is circumcision. Have, you need to be circumcised to be a believer. And Paul is contradicting that. He says, no, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. The fact that all of humanity is under sin as it is written, verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. When Matthew responds to, blessed are the poor in spirit, it's this recognition of believers. That when we come to Christ, we are spiritually bankrupt. There is nothing within us that warrants God's goodness. There is nothing within us that warrants His grace upon our lives. There is nothing within us that would cause Him to say, yes, I am going to be merciful to you. Blessed are those people. Blessed are those who realize they're poor in spirit. Blessed are we when we realize we come to Christ with nothing. Because it's not a matter of working our way into the kingdom. It's not a matter of earning our salvation. Scripture tells us it is the free gift of God. It is a right recognition of who we are before Christ. Knowing that if we were going to die and come before him, we could not give him any other excuse to say, I should be led into your kingdom to have eternal life other than proclaiming Christ. I believed in Christ and him crucified. And that's why Matthew in verse 1 is telling them, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, because that is what our reward is. Our character before God is having nothing, being spiritually bankrupt. But because of Christ, his righteousness has been applied to us. 
And so before God, we are seen in the light of Christ. We are seen as his children. And so we have gone from being spiritually bankrupt in and of ourselves to being with Christ and having his righteousness applied to us. And we get the reward of eternal life. Jesus in Luke chapter 18 verses 9 through 14 tells a parable of, of this, of having this recognition of our minds that we, we come to God without anything. We come to him, there's nothing we can offer God. And so he tells the parable in Luke and he talks about a Pharisee and a tax collector. And as we talked about this, and I've mentioned this story in many other sermons, but you have the Pharisee who goes into the temple and he goes to pray before God and offer him his sacrifices and offerings and he proudly lifts up his eyes to heaven to proclaim to God as there is the tax collector next to him and he's proclaiming to God, thank you, Lord, I'm not like this man. That I don't resort to the same things that he resorts to, that I am, I am better than him. The Pharisee thinking of himself more highly than he ought to, thinking that he was better off, that he had more to offer God than the man next to him. And Jesus continues the parable, and then you have the tax collector who comes in, and he can't even lift his eyes to look at God. He humbly comes before him, and it says he comes before the altar, and he, he bows down, and his eyes are downcast. He beats his breast and says, have mercy on me. Father, for I am a sinner. Have mercy on me. The message that Jesus was teaching was to his disciples, asking which one of them went away better off. It wasn't the Pharisee who thought he had no need for God. It was the tax collector who rightly understood his position before God. God, I am a sinner. I am in need of your mercy. There is nothing I can bring before you. There is nothing I can lay before you. Lord, I am at the mercy of your love and compassion. And so in verse 1 we have that blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who have the right recognition of who they are before God and are trusting not in their own works, their own righteousness, but are trusting in the righteousness of Christ. If you're still in Romans, if you flip over to Romans chapter 10, talking about this message of salvation, talking about being what it is to be poor in spirit, Paul would continue in chapter 10 to them in verse 8. Talking about Christ's righteousness, not their own righteousness, it says, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. What is that word of faith they proclaim? It's Jesus, verse 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, 
everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who rightly recognize their position before God, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Question this morning, who's, what are you trusting in? As we look at that verse, what are you trusting in? Are you trusting in your own righteousness? Or are you trusting in the righteousness of Christ? Do you recognize your poorness of spirit? Or is there something within you that cries out to God, you need to let me in because of this or because of that? Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. As I said, each one of these is building upon the other. So when we are looking at the scripture in the light of that, you are first at the point in your life Christ is describing for them when they come to believe, when they recognize their poorness of spirit, when they recognize the righteousness of Christ and their own unrighteousness, what follows that is this, blessed are those who mourn. What is it that we are to be mourning? Oftentimes, this verse is used in conjunction with those that have lost loved ones, those that Need comfort, and, and that is true. There is comfort for us in knowing that uh, of the loss of a loved one, if they are in, there is comfort that is there in our lives. But that is not what this is specifically talking about. It's not talking about the loss of a loved one that we are in need of comfort in, that we are mourning. Specifically, it's the sin that exists in our life that we are mourning, that when we realize we are poor in spirit, that we come to Christ with nothing, we recognize his righteousness, our own unrighteousness, we recognize our own sinfulness in us, and we are brought to our knees in tears, weeping over what we have done to Christ, what we have done to God, of how we have disobeyed him, of how we have wronged him, of how we have inflicted the wounds upon him. I was convicted of this as I was studying this and, and reading this. Uh, again, John Stott's commentary on the, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, he had this to say. He says, I fear that we evangelical Christians, by making much of grace, sometimes thereby make light of sin. We elevate grace, we make light of sin. We think sometimes that it's no big deal. I've sinned, I can come to God, I can confess, I can get forgiveness, and that is true. But when we talk about repentance, when we talk about mourning, it's more than just Words that are coming from our lips. 
asking for Christ's forgiveness. He goes on to say, we should experience more godly grief of Christian penitence. Like that sensitive and Christ-like 18th century missionary to the American Indians, David Brainerd, who wrote in his journal in October of 1740, said this, In my morning devotions, my soul was exceedingly melted and bitterly mourned over my exceeding sinfulness and vileness. Tears like this are the holy water which God has said to store in his bottle. I've heard pastor many times ask this question. When, sometimes in, in private when we are meeting and sometimes in public, but when is the last time you wept over your own sin? Legally, we're not, you know, we're not trusting in our righteousness when we come before God. Legally before God, he has justified us. He has declared us righteous before him. And we call that justification, but we have this sanctification process in our lives where we become more like Christ. And there are times when we sin. There are times when we obviously are not being obedient to God. And it affects our relationship with him. It impedes the Spirit's ability to work through us and to work through others. It keeps us from speaking the truth sometimes to others. It keeps us from being bold because we're saying, you know, I just did this or I did that or, you know, Father, I wasn't following you. Why would you? Why would you call me to do that? But he does call us to action. And one of those actions is to mourn over our sin, is to, to bitterly weep before him. Because it is a fact of life that we will continue to sin. It is it's a hard thing when we recognize who God is, who we are, what He has done, what we have done, how we have fallen. When we talk about mourning our sin, when we talk about repentance, one of the ways in which it is described in Scripture is a contrite heart. In the Psalms, it talks about what, uh, David talks about it, what does the Lord require, what does the Lord desire of you? You know, a broken and contrite heart God will not despise. And what that means is a, a full recognition of what our sin means for us. In Isaiah chapter 57, verses uh, 15 and 16, it says this, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. God says this, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the spirit would grow faint before me and the breath of life that I made. 
Isaiah talking about uh, the Israelites and before them reminding them that God is not going to be angry forever, but it gives us a picture of who God is, of how he sees us, of us mourning for our sins, of us repenting over our sin, of coming before him, of knowing our place, and finding comfort, finding forgiveness, finding grace, finding mercy. As he says, he revives the spirit of the lowly. He revives the heart of the contrite. God provides comfort for us. It's comforting to know, as Paul, again in Romans chapter 5, would say this in verse 8, but God shows us his love for us and that while we were still sinners, as we're mourning our sin, as we're understanding that we come before God poor in spirit, Scripture tells us while we were yet in that condition, Christ died for us. The just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous. Oh, what a comfort that is to know that while we were in that condition, God made a way through Christ. In Romans 5 again, it's 5 verse 12. This is the, the comfort. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Romans 5, verse 12, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam was a type of the one who was to come. In this passage, Paul is going to contrast Adam as the father of humanity and Christ as the savior of humanity. That in Adam all had died because of his disobedience to God, but in Christ there is a free gift. In verse 15, the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. There is comfort right there in that, that after much trespasses in our own life, thinking of our own sin, after many trespasses, the free gift given by Christ because of his work on the cross, free to us, not free concerning God. It cost God greatly, but given freely to us, brought justification. What comfort there is in knowing that, and knowing that because of Christ, we can be free. In 
Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Comforting words. If you remember back in the beginning of this year, I taught on the passage of uh, the book of Second Peter and taught through the scriptures there. In chapter 3, verse 9, it says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. What comforting words there are for those that mourn. The comforting words for us that are mourned our own sin and recognize our own place before God, but we also recognize not just our sin, but the sin of others as well. That our family members are in need of Christ. Our children are in need of Christ. The world is in need of Christ. The guy who lives next door, the person who's working the cash register, the person who pumps your gas if you go to Jersey, are they're all in need of Christ. And what comfort there is in knowing that God is slow. Not in terms of how we counsel on this, but it's because of his patience. It's his patience that not any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Time and time again we see in the scriptures of the men of God mourning the sins of the world. They have already mourned their sins and continue to mourn their own sin. Much like Isaiah in 6.5 that I mentioned earlier saying, Woe is me, becoming before God, becoming before the holiness of God, saying, I am a man of unclean lips, dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He is mourning before God. The psalmist in 119, 136, My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Talking about the Israelites, seeing what they have done. In Ezekiel 9.4, this is a vision given to the prophet. And what he sees is condemnation. It is judgment upon the people for their sins. But the Lord was saying to the executioners in his vision this. He says, pass through the city, through Jerusalem. Put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. In his vision, Ezekiel sees that these are the ones that are saved, those that are mourning over the sins that are taking place, that have not forsaken God, who have not been blinded, who are not consumed with self. They are the ones that are saved. In Philippians 3.18, Paul talking to the church at Philippi, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. When we're brought before God and we're brought before this, as Matthew is talking about the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus is teaching his disciples, blessed are those who are poor in spirit because they are they are banking on the righteousness of God. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted because they rightfully see their sin before God and know that Christ has taken it away. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And we don't have time this morning to, to get into the next beatitude. But as we think on these things and dwell on these things this week, think of how these things impact your life. 
as I said before, who are you trusting in? As we read verse 1, who are you trusting in? Is it yourself or Christ? In verse 4, blessed are those who mourn. When's the last time you've wept over your own sins? Or even the sins of what the world has become. Let's close in prayer this morning. We're not going to close with a song this morning. But let this be a time of uh, quiet reflection before God as we dwell on these things. And I would urge that you would even read the rest of the Beatitudes and seek them out even this week and think on these things and dwell on these things of what Christ is trying to teach his disciples, what Christ is even speaking to us today as these are still relevant as we mentioned that these are qualities that Christ say should exist in all of us. And it's not because of anything we have done, but it's because of what Christ has done for us. Let us pray. Father, we come before you this, this morning and we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for just how... You have provided for us your words, how you have provided for us insight into your character, into your integrity, into the way in which you have dealt with humanity, your creation, of how much care you have for us, of your patience and your steadfastness and how long-suffering you are on our behalf so that all would come to know repentance. And Father, we know that is not the case, that... Not all will be convicted, but we pray that your spirit would continue to convict your children. To bring them back into a right relationship with you because of the work of Christ. To recognize our poorness in spirit before you. To recognize that we come with nothing. To weep openly over our sin, Father. I pray you would even this week bear the, the, the full weight of that upon us. to spend time with you and to know that because of our poorness in spirit and the work of Christ, we shall have eternal life, inherit the kingdom of God, that because of our sin and our mourning over it and because of Christ's work and his taking our sin upon himself, we shall be comforted. I pray even this week that you would even place on our hearts specific people within our sphere of influence that need to hear this message, that need to hear the good news, that needs to hear the gospel, that needs to be reminded of these things, even as it is a reminder for us this morning to come back to you. To fully recognize our position before you. of your goodness. You're a good, good Father. It's who you are. It's who you are, Lord. Thank you. I pray this morning that if there is any here that needs you, Father, that you would, you would call them out. Today is the day of salvation. Do not let it pass by.
Father, I pray that you would keep us until we all get together again. That you would keep those safe that are away. That you would continue to heal those that are recovering from surgery and illnesses and sickness. And we pray that we would get to see you face to face, Lord. Soon and very soon, we are going to see the King. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.